Well, it is a joy to be with you, and uh, I love coming to these conferences because I enjoy hanging with uh, Bob as well. Uh, but I consider it a, a real privilege to be at this conference each time and to address you because of my respect for you. Now, I don't know most of you personally at all, uh, but I know the fact that you're here communicates a number of things, which Bob's, Bob alluded to, that you've taken time off work. Many of you are burning vacation days to be here. Uh, you've spent money. You've made arrangements. And uh, you're here to learn and to be equipped to better serve God's people in corporate worship. And what, uh, what greater thing could you give yourself to? And I just respect you because you are the folks that are the first ones in and the last ones out every Sunday. Um, some of you are in perhaps church plant situations where you're toting and setting up and doing the whole, the whole thing. Uh, but you, all of you do plenty behind the scenes. If uh, you're involved in tech, you do a lot behind the scenes. If you're playing an instrument, you practice and learn songs and work with the team behind the scenes. Uh, if you lead uh, corporate uh, music, corporate worship, then you are planning and preparing your heart and learning. So I just so am so grateful for what each of you do and what a, what a difference it makes um, in each of your local churches. So that's why I consider it a privilege to be here among you uh, and with you. And I'm thankful for this conference. Uh, I'm thankful to be able to speak. I'm thankful for the topic that Bob gave me, uh, sort of, faithful to receive. If you haven't looked at, at, the, uh, at your binder, you'll see that each, uh, each message is faithful, faithful for something. And so I was just kind of thinking, he gave me faithful to receive, and uh, I was thinking, now, I wonder how Bob went about thinking and planning this. I mean, he probably thought of, who's a guy, who's someone I know who is selfless, uh, generous, puts others above himself. Okay, that guy, let's give him faithful to serve. That, that's, one of the, that's one of the sessions, faithful to serve. Uh, I probably thought of a guy, who, who, who do I know that fears God and highly esteems the Word of God and, and has a, a pronounced preaching gift? Well, let's give that person, person faithful to proclaim. So that'll be one of the sessions. You probably thought, well, who do I know who is humble, uh, who is pursuing holiness with all his heart and, and has a desire to grow? Let's give that person faithful to grow. Bob assigned himself that topic. <laughs> who do I know pursuing God with all their heart? Well, that would be me. And um, <laughs> so I'll take that session. But faith. Faithful to receive. Hey, who do I know who has nothing to contribute? <laughs> Let me think of, who do I know who brings nothing to the party, who is simply there as a taker and never a contributor? Faithful to receive. That's that guy. And so uh, that's how I got assigned this, I suppose. So I am semi-honored to have... No contribution to make, but to be a guy who is really good at receiving and, uh, and be here to impart my gift to you today so that you receive well. Let's pray and we will jump into our, um, our session. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. And all kidding aside, Lord, we want to receive. We want to receive from you. We want to receive from your spirit through your holy word today. We want to have a fresh glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to appreciate who you are and what you've done for us in a new way today. We, we need your Spirit to open our hearts and to open our minds 
and to grant us strength to be hearers and doers of the Word, Lord. So we posture ourselves appropriately as receivers today. And Lord, we pray that we would receive a fresh understanding and a fresh desire to honor you with our lives. So God, would you come and speak to us from your word this morning. Lord, fill me with your spirit and enable me to preach accurately uh, this word to the wonderful folks gathered here today, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be looking at John 4 today. John chapter 4, so you can open up your, your Bibles to John 4. I remember many years ago uh, when I was a poor seminary student, and uh, I had a friend. We had gone to college together, and we took different paths when we graduated. Uh, he got a really good job that made a lot of money right out of college, and I went on for more school. And uh, so I was poor, and uh, he was a young single guy with a lot of money. And so we would get together ever so often and, uh, and meet for dinner, for lunch, have a meal together. And he always insisted upon paying for the meal. At the conclusion of the meal, you've had this experience, you both reach for the check, and then you have that little uh, argument about who's going to pay for it. And so he would typically say, well, you're still in school, but I have a job, so I'm going to pay for it. So that worked a few times. And then I thought, well, no, I want to participate as well. I can pay. And so I remember another time after that, he had used that line a number of times. I was appealing to pay. And he said, hey, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to steal my blessing? I mean, it is my blessing to buy this meal for you. So then he sort of guilted me into it. So, oh, yeah, well, I'm not here to be a thief or anything like that. I don't want to steal your blessing. So anyway, I let him pay for it that time. And this went on and on. And I remember one time after multiple meals uh, where we were together and uh, I argued again. I grabbed for the check and I was arguing with him. No, you always pay. Always let me pay. And I want to do it. I never forget what he said to me. He, he looked at me and with a stern rebuke, he said to me, Craig, you can't even be a Christian if you can't receive. I was like, whoa, just wanted to buy a burrito. And uh, <laughs> guys questioning the very authenticity of my regeneration, it's just a burrito. <laughs> okay, you, you can buy, you can buy. But I thought about what he said, and though he was joking, and how profound what he said really was. You can't even be a Christian if you can't receive a gift. He articulated the fundamental identity of a Christian. His point was profound. He was putting his finger on the DNA of a believer. A Christian is not someone who has picked up the check. A Christian is not someone who has paid their part. A Christian is not someone who has contributed in any way. A Christian is someone who has received. A Christian is someone who has received eternal life through the gift of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection on our behalf for our sins, and has simply received the gift that He provides. See, Christianity is unique among other religions in, in this, in that the adherents of Christianity are those, are those who have not done something for their God, 
to be converted, but have received something from their God. Christian equals recipient. It's the very nature of who we are by definition. And this is what grace is all about. Grace is all about receiving those undeserving, those who not only are undeserving of God, but those who actually have merited his judgment, yet we have received his undeserved favor. This is grace. And I I think that all of us would understand that we come into the Christian life as recipients. But perhaps we don't realize quite as clearly that to mature and to grow in the Christian life is a matter of receiving as well, that we mature as those who receive. And to draw this specifically to the theme of worship, which the conference is obviously about, when we gather as a worshiping community on Sunday mornings, when we gather as a worshiping community, we gather first and foremost as recipients. And keeping this in mind, it will not only affect our Christian lives, but it will also affect the way we view and understand And for those of us who lead in any capacity, the way we lead in our Sunday gatherings as those who are faithful to receive. In an environment like this where we have come to learn about serving God's people in corporate worship, it is easy to focus on our role as doers rather than receivers. And so before we fill our notepads, our our binders with all kinds of notes of insights that we're going to pick up in the next couple days. Before we take our outlines from our seminars and, and figure out what we're going to do when we get back, before we, you know, get some wisdom over lunch today and say, oh, that's what I'm going to do when I get home, before we concentrate on anything that we're going to return to do, let's begin by considering our calling to receive and our calling to receive as the very basis of our worship. To do so, I want to look at a very familiar account out of John 4 about Jesus encountering a woman from Samaria and and encountering her delivering a startling grace. He he is sent by the Father to pursue her. He catches her completely off guard and he illustrates very clearly in this passage our posture as those who receive from God and respond with worship. So let's read. I'm gonna, we're primarily going to concentrate on verses 16 to 26. But let me read the first 15 verses just to give the background briefly. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, <coughs> he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What happens here early on is important to kind of set up the conversation because Jesus is going to have a conversation about worship with her in the next verses. And it's important to understand kind of what's going on here beside this, uh, in, in the background. Jesus was traveling, and it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, he was uh, uh, on his way. Uh, he was leaving the area of Judea, and he was leaving for Galilee. And it says that he had to part. Depart, he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, he had to, not because that was the only route of travel. A strict Jew wouldn't have traveled through there because it was an unclean area, Samaria. But he had to because the Lord, the Father, was sending him there. God, the Father, was sending him on a rescue mission for this Samaritan woman and ultimately for her town. And he begins to engage the woman, which is unusual. Verse 9 tells us Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So there is a barrier between this woman and Jesus, but Jesus, note this, is pursuing this woman sent by the Father. Samaritans and Jews were different. They had religious differences. Samaritans worshipped at a different temple than the Jerusalem temple. Samaritans only believed in the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus, though they were separated people that, that, that really had a hatred for one another in many ways, Jesus crosses through that barrier to engage her. There was a separation between men and women. No proper Jewish man would be found having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a woman. That's why she says, why are you uh, speaking to me, a woman from Samaria? But Jesus crashes through the man-made gender barrier to talk to her. He asked for a drink, and she says, well, you have nothing to drink from. There's more than just a discussion about cups going on there. You see, for him to drink after a Samaritan would render him unclean, according to the culture of the day, the traditions of the day. But Jesus obliterates that barrier of tradition that would have separated them and asks for something to drink, presumably from her vessel. You see, this woman would not have been able to advance beyond those barriers to Jesus. She couldn't have be advanced beyond those barriers and other barriers that she's likely even unaware of having to do with the absolute righteousness of God in her own sinfulness. But she would not have been able to move through those barriers, and yet Jesus runs over those barriers to get to her and to engage her. He is pursuing her through this conversation. As a matter of fact, he's come announcing himself as a gift and a gift to her. Look at verse 10, which we just read. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Jesus says, I'm a gift. I'm here as a gift to you, and I'm asking you for water, but I'm offering something much better. I'm offering living water, which she is confused about. She doesn't know. Is he talking living water is running water? This is stagnant water. Jacob built this well. It was good enough for Jacob, our father. She says, are you greater than Jacob? Uh, Well, now that you mention it, yes. Uh, (laughs) Actually, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we'll get to that in a moment. He's probably thinking here he will make himself known in just a second. And so she is confused about all of this, but she says, give me this water to drink. She wants what he is offering. She wants the gift that he is offering, even if she doesn't totally understand it. And so Jesus prepares her to receive, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus prepares her to receive in this conversation by revealing something from her life. He reveals that she has had five husbands. He reveals that the, woman, the man that she is now living with is not her husband. And in revealing this, he has uncovered her guilt. He has uncovered her shame. She, she is laid bare in her soul before him. And we learn that she is a broken woman whose life has consisted of a series of collapsed relationships. And so she knows rejection. And yet Jesus is not rejecting her. Jesus is pursuing her. In fact, he is the gift of God to her, as he describes. She's stunned by this revelation. How could he possibly, how could this Jewish man, unknown in her town, how could he possibly know all of this? And so she says, I perceive you are a prophet. He's not just some stranger at the well. He's a guy who knows things that he could not know. And she wisely identifies him as a prophet of God. I perceive that you are a prophet. And with her heart open, her character revealed, her soul laid bare, she then introduces the topic of worship, and she introduces a worship war, the worship war that they were a part of in that day. And once he reveals this to her, her response to him 
verse 19, after she says, I perceive you're a prophet, verse 20 rather, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. So she immediately moves to where is it that we should pursue God? The Jews say Jerusalem. My people say Mount Gerizim, which may have been right there. They may have been standing under it. She may have pointed to it. So we say Mount Gerizim, the the Samaritans, you say Jerusalem. Which one is it? Now, what is she doing here? Is she diverting attention away from her sin? Is she pushing away from the spotlight that is on her and trying to get on a broad topic so that he won't reveal anything else about her? I don't think so. I think she's sincere in her question. I mean, if you read the rest of the passage which, and go on further, even past what we read, you find out that she's converted. She's not trying to get away from Jesus. She is converted. This is leading to her very conversion. I think she is, she is wanting to know, where can I go to meet God? She, she is wanting to encounter God. And having spoken to this prophet, she is now freshly aware of her own sin, her own life, and she's probably thinking atonement. The temple is primarily the place of atonement. And so when her sin is revealed, she begins to think, where can I encounter God? Where is there atonement? She has encountered a prophet, and now she needs a priest. And so it is not necessarily a disregarding of God that she is trying to do here. She's not trying to bait and switch or to divert attention. I think she's wondering, where is it that we go? Where can I encounter God? And Jesus tells her, listen, woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Things are changing, ma'am. It's not a question of where do you go to worship the Father. It's a new hour. Jesus usually refers to this term hour in the book of John to speak of his death or sometimes even of his coming. And that's why he says later, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain that you will worship. And he goes on to say in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He says the question is not about where do you go to worship. It's not tied to location. It's tied to worship in spirit and in truth. The hour. Something is changing at the hour. What is the hour? The hour is that God has become man and Jesus Christ to come and pay for our sins. That Jesus will take our sins upon the cross. His hour that he will be the substitutionary sacrifice to make atonement for our sin, that he will absorb the very wrath of God that was due us on the cross as he dies in our place, the innocent lamb for the guilty sinner, and then he will be buried, and on the third day he will arise from the grave, defeating the power of death, defeating the power of sin, and reconciling God and man to all who would believe in him. That is the hour. And so he's saying, it is a new hour, ma'am. It is a new hour. It's not that hill. It's not that hill. It is through me, ultimately, I am the Messiah, he says in the next few verses. It is through me that you worship now in spirit and in truth. See, she's asking about what temple should I go to? 
But in chapter 2, Jesus has already said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And it says of that he was speaking about his own body. He's already said, I'm the new temple. You don't come through a building, you're going to come through me. She doesn't need a sacrifice in the temple. In chapter 1, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the new temple. She doesn't need to figure which location. He's standing right there in her midst. And her response is to be one sought by the Father who would worship in spirit and truth. That is, she is not worshiping in truth right now, yet truth incarnate has has come to her to invite her to worship as the gift of God. So to worship in truth is to worship this Jesus, through this Jesus to the Father, the truth of who He is as the Savior. And to worship in spirit is to worship from the heart, not a location, but from the heart, to gather with God's people and worship from the heart to individually encounter God in Christ and worship from the heart. Now, we obviously worship in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit as well, but I think here he's talking about from our heart to worship in the truth of the gospel and the truth of the character of God and from our heart to him. She is wondering where do people go to seek God, and here's what Jesus says. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. She's saying, where can I go and seek God? And Jesus is saying, God is seeking you. The Father has sought you. Something that she was not expecting at all. It's not tied to location. It's spirit and truth. And so she kind of says, well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this stuff to us. (laughs) <laughs> which is so ironic. One day the Messiah will come and he'll, he'll clarify all of what's being said. I am the Messiah, is what he says. And she is gloriously converted because what happens is she runs into her town. She tells everybody about Jesus. The whole, essentially, the town comes out to meet him. Many of them become converts and Jesus stays with this unclean people in this unclean town for two more days And they're no longer unclean. They are believers in Jesus Christ because the Father has sought them. It's a beautiful account of Jesus reaching an outsider in a whole city of outsiders. And what's fascinating is in in the midst, it's really a harvest narrative. It's about harvest. It's about reaching people. But in the middle of this harvest narrative, there's a conversation about worship. And what he does is he redirects her perspective. He reorients her understanding, and he does for us as well. Through the way he pursues her and through the statements, the explanations, the teaching that he brings her, he gives us a baseline for understanding worship. As they get on this theme of worship, we can look at how he's responding to her. We can look at what he's saying to her, and we get this baseline that worship results from something God does, not something that we do. Worship originates with the Father seeking us, and not us seeking the Father. Look at verse 23 again. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
a lot of time is spent on these verses seeking to understand what does he mean by spirit and truth. If you read about these verses, there's a lot a lot of conversation about what does he mean by spirit and truth, and that's really important. That's really valuable. But there is a core truth below that. If we peel away what does spirit and truth mean, if we peel that away, there is a core of truth about worship below that, and that is this, that the Father is seeking worshipers. Sometimes we just can skate right on past the Father seeking to get to, what is spirit and truth? What do I need to bring to God? What does my worship need to be like? How can I be a true worshiper bringing true worship to God? And we can miss this this sort of foundational point that God is seeking worshipers. That it is he who has sought us. Here's the big worship idea that I'd like to draw from this conversation between Jesus and the woman. And that is this, that true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us, not our pursuit of him. True worship, that is worship in spirit and truth, it emerges from the Father's pursuit of us. Worship begins with our receiving, not our giving. We are recipients. We are beneficiaries. We are not suppliers of worship. We are not providers of worship. We are recipients of the work of God who respond to Him. Our first duty as worshipers is to understand more clearly what we have received from Him who we have received, what he has done for us. You see, the Samaritan lady, her story is really our story. We too were outsiders far from God. We too were unclean. We too were separated from God, not just by religious tradition, but by hearts that were dead in sin, hearts that were in rebellion before a holy God. We too were far from God. We too were needy beyond description. Our souls were threadbare, just like this woman's were. We were dead. We were confused just like she was. And yet we have been sought. God has revealed to us our sin, our barrenness, our neediness, and yet He has loved us and pursued us and sent His very Son to die for us to transfer our hearts from death to life so that we would be worshipers. But we are recipients of His pursuit That is so important to understand. This has profound implications for us as as worshipers. It has profound implications for us who lead in worship in any way. See, it is vital that we are far more aware of the Father's loving provision for us in Jesus and the Father's loving pursuit of us by the Holy Spirit. We are to be far more aware of those two truths than we are our pursuit of Him. Are we here more aware of our pursuing God? Are we here more aware of seeking to learn how we can respond to him better? Or are we starting back a step and saying, I want to understand more deeply what he's done for me. I want to understand more deeply his love for me. I want to understand more deeply his grace towards me. I want my heart to spark with affection because of a clearer understanding of who he is and what he's done. See, we can see ourselves in her and in this story. And this shapes our approach to worship. It shapes our approach to corporate worship. Let me offer two 
ideas that are practical applications for our gathered worship. When you think about your gathering of worship at home, here are two practical applications drawn from this theme that true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him. Two, I said applications, kind of implications, implications and applications from, uh, from that reality. Number one, concentrate on receiving and you'll magnify grace. Concentrate on receiving, and you will magnify grace. If you want your worship gathering to give off an aroma of grace, then concentrate on what you have received in Christ, what you have received from God. Have you ever noticed that when you visit someone's house that maybe you're not familiar with it, often will have its own unique scent? When you walk into the house, the people there may not recognize it, but you recognize it. And I'm not talking about like they cooked fish for dinner last night or uh, there's a two-year-old that, uh, that someone needs to pay attention to their diaper <laughs> because we're all aware. I- I'm not talking about that kind of aroma. Those are distinct, unpleasant aromas um, that have to do with activity of members of the household. I'm talking about just the, you walk in and there's just an instantly a, a, just a scent in the home. I believe our worship gatherings, our house for the Lord, I believe that we have an aroma as well. And if we want that aroma to be the grace of God, then we will be very clear about who He is and what we've done. And we will accent those realities more than what we're doing for Him or how we are pursuing Him. When we elevate the person and work of Christ and celebrate what He has done and how He has applied His work to us, the aroma will be grace. The tone of the room, the truth lingering in the room, the vibe of the experience will be grace. People will walk out impressed by him and not by us. People will walk out aware of him and not of us. See, the Samaritan woman, she cannot contain her astonishment that she has received from Jesus the Messiah. And we want that to be the aroma of our worship, is that like her, we cannot believe what God has done for us. And worship flows from an announcement of who he is and what he's done. Look at at what happens with her, verse 28. We didn't read this, but verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. That's what she came for. She forgot all about her physical thirst. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She is exclaiming this amazing truth. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She just begins to overflow. Well, that's a testimony. Yes, so is ours. When we're singing these truths that we're singing, they're a testimony of who he is and what he's done for us. The testimony of, our, of the nature of God and our experience of him, it overflows into worship. It overflows into praise. When we give attention to what we have received, we will be overjoyed. When we give attention to what we have received, we are humbled. We are grateful. We are awestruck. We want to declare it. We want to sing it. We want to announce it. We want to tell it. We want to get together with those who've experienced the same thing in gathered worship. And as a body of people, as a, as a group of people, announce this is who he is. 
And we know it because it's in the Scripture and it's true, and we know it because of what He's done in our lives. But it's what we have received from Him that animates our worship and our praise. It is the truth that we know about Him that stirs us to sing. It is easy to lose this sense of wonder. She has a sense of wonder. How about a guy who told me everything I ever did? Can you believe that? Actually, they did. People got converted through the testimony about Jesus, it says. I don't know about you, but it's easy week in, week out to lose that sense of amazement and of awe and sort of get to where it may not be this crass, but where we're just kind of running through a meeting. Hopefully there's more to it than that, but it can almost get to where we slide into a rut of going through the motions, singing the songs, having the Scripture reading, praying the prayers, hearing the sermon, but we forget He's real, and He's here, and He has saved us, and He is active, and He has ongoing grace towards us. He's pursuing us in love. Even now as converts, He's opening our eyes to fresh truths about His glory, His holiness, His grace, His majesty, His sovereignty. He's really here. You ever have an experience in worship where you realize He's really here and you're in awe? Maybe that just happened for you this morning. I hope it happens throughout the conference. But you ever have a meeting, a moment in a meeting where it's like, we're not just running through the motions. He's really here now. I mean, He always has been, but I'm aware what I've received from Him. We recently had an experience in our church where this just woke me up to the reality of, of God. Uh, this, it was Easter Sunday, this most recent Easter Sunday. I preach most weeks, and normally I just preach and people just listen like you're doing right now, and there's not anything that seems drastically unusual. I mean, every time I preach, there's not this holy hush and uh, you know people crawling under their seat because the, 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 the holiness of God is so manifest that they're just climbing under. And that doesn't normally happen, you know, three out of four Sundays, but not every week. And... Um, so I'm preaching on Easter Sunday, and, uh, and I'm kind of tired. We have two services. This is the very end of the second sermon, and I'm, I'm not going to exaggerate what I'm just telling you because there's a bunch of people from our church or several people from our church in the front, and uh, so you can't exaggerate a story when there's accountability on the front row. But um, So I'm preaching, and I'm preaching uh, out of 1 Corinthians 15, and the theme, the big idea of uh, the Easter sermon was that because... Uh, because he was resurrected, we will be one day as well. And uh, so there's guests there, and I'm trying to make the point so that everybody realizes this is really serious. I'm trying to do that in a dramatic way. So I'm not going, this is really serious, you know, just telling them. I'm trying to do it in a, in a, in a meaningful, I mean, I'm not putting anything on. I believe this. And so I communicate at one part. I don't know anything about many of you. I don't know about your future, but I know this about you. You will die. And it wasn't that very second. That would be an exaggeration. It wasn't that very second, but it was a period of moments. I mean, it wasn't long after that where someone in this section over here stands up. I see a guy standing up and leaning over the seat in front of him. And there's a guy passing out and falling to the ground. And people are moving the chairs to give him space because he is having an apparent heart attack. I have said, you will die. And there's a guy with chest pains, 
pain running down his arm. He's sweating. He's laying on the ground. And, and I kind of went down there with a group who was around him. And I think he's seeing the Lord. Almost he's saying, Jesus, Jesus. He's talking to the Lord. I'm like, is he seeing him? What is that? Somebody yells out, call 911. And all of a sudden, a point that was made with a pointed finger, you will die, has become, is this happening right now? So that was the end of the service. Obviously, we dismissed people. Ambulance came in, put the guy in the ambulance. I followed the ambulance to the hospital. And when I got there, he was coherent. And it, like one of the first things he said to me is, oh, man, I didn't want to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> like, we're supposed to be hearers and doers of the word, but that's not really what I had in mind. He said, you will die. I didn't think, yeah, yeah, me right now. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to obey. You know, it wasn't really what he was thinking. And amazing story. They kept the guy for like three days, literally three days in the hospital. I could not find what was wrong with him. But it was an Easter that anyone who's in that worship service will never forget because it was a moment where we were thinking about we will all die. Maybe we were casually thinking about having ham and an Easter egg hunt in the afternoon, but it all changed very fast when a guy's apparently having a heart attack. Uh, who's now fine, and again, they never know what happened, to, never knew what happened to him, but he's, he's healthy now from what, what we know. It was a shocking moment where all of a sudden, this is true. Yeah, this is really true. He really did pursue me. He really did seek me. He really did change my life. He's real. I've received something from him, and it's not just a meeting where we're running through motions. It's reality. There's nothing truer about my life than I have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. As we prepare and plan for our corporate worship, we should think about the reality of what we're stepping into, what we have received in Jesus Christ, the truth of the songs we sing and the Scripture we read. And I would recommend if you are involved in the preparation part of leading God's people in worship, I would recommend that before we get to considering a worship theme, before we go down the road of selecting songs, thinking through the arrangements, planning the transitions, all very important stuff, writing out an exhortation, selecting a passage of Scripture to read, preparing to lead in prayer before we write a sermon, I, I, I think we'd be wise to pause and to think about Jesus Christ and who He is and what we've received from Him. Before we run to our response, before we run to faithful to sing, faithful to pray, faithful to preach, we'd be wise to be faithful to receive. God, what have you done for me? And allow our hearts to marinate in that, to personally interact with the Father and contemplate what he has done for us. And here's why that's important. Because your primary identity is not leader. Your primary identity is not singer, guitarist, tech guy. This is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is receiver of the grace of God. Child of God, adopted by the Father, pursued by Him. 
We want to be those who are receivers, whose hearts overflow because we have a revelation. And I, I say that advised, I use that word advisedly. We have a, a biblical revelation. Our eyes are opened to what he's done for us. It makes all the difference. But it's easy to just get into the stuff we got to do. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Um, he was a well-known um, British uh, Baptist pastor in the second half of the 19th century. He's quotable, very quotable. And uh, this is something he wrote about his own experience of seeing how the grace of God was applied to him and the difference it made. He said, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all by myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. That He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. Quote, I ascribe my change wholly to God. He came to realize that Jesus died for him, was resurrected for him, that Jesus was the Savior, and that not only that truth, that's the truth of his salvation, but God had opened his eyes to that, and God was at the bottom of it all because the Father is seeking worshipers, true worshipers, who will worship in spirit and truth. He realized the Father sought me. That's how I came to respond and to seek him. That's her testimony. That's Spurgeon's testimony. That's your testimony, Christian. God in love sought you. So if we concentrate on receiving, grace will flourish in us and in our churches and will magnify grace. Concentrate on receiving and you'll magnify grace. Number two and the final point, concentrate on receiving and you'll worship in spirit and truth. Concentrate on receiving and you'll worship in spirit and truth and truth. Our understanding of what Christ has done for us prepares us to respond to the truth of the gospel from the heart. I'm going to say that again. Our understanding of what Christ has done for us prepares us. It doesn't guarantee, but it prepares us to respond to the truth of the gospel from the heart. Spirit and truth worship. To respond to the truth of the character of God from our hearts our job is to receive and to respond. Concentrate on receiving, and you'll be prepared to respond in spirit and truth. Our job is to receive and to respond in worship, not to create worship. We don't create worship. We respond faithfully in spirit and truth to what the Lord has done. We don't originate worship. 
We respond to what we've received in Christ. There's a big difference between respond and create. A big difference in respond and create. As a, as a worship leader, those of you who are worship leaders, you're not called to be a worship creator. As if it's your job to get everybody in the room, let's get them all worshiping God because I am the creator of worship for our church. You're not the worship designer. You're not the worship innovator. You're not the worship architect. Where are you getting all these? Well, number you handed me your business cards right before we started, and I'm just reading off what they say. That's not true. I'm sure no one here views themselves as the worship visionary architect. You're not the worship producer. You're certainly not the worship entrepreneur. The worship engineer, I am here to engineer worship for the people of God. The worship visionary, you're not the worship pioneer. You're called to be a faithful receiver of biblical revelation and a faithful responder in spirit and in truth. Those are the people the Father is seeking, those who respond in spirit and truth. You don't originate worship. Worship is a response when we see who He is and what He's done. It's our heart response to Him. Therefore, since you don't originate worship, you shouldn't make it your passion and your burden to seek to be original. That's part of the introduction that Bob gave about being faithful. You don't originate worship, so don't seek to be original. You don't get bonus points for originality in worship. Dudes get killed in the Bible for that. (laughs) You're bringing your own original deal and people get struck down. So there's no bonus points. We're called to be faithful receivers and spirit and truth responders. Now, I didn't say that we're not, uh, that we don't want to be creative in our expression of worship. I'm not advocating being stale, dated, lifeless, not not advocating that. But freshness in worship is not, it doesn't stem from uh, your fresh human creativity. Freshness in worship stems from having a fresh appreciation of who he is and what he's done. You get a fresh glimpse of Jesus and you'll have freshness in worship. Not you get a new sound or we brought back this song from the con- uh, from the conference. Here's the song that's going to bring the presence. We sing this song like Bob did and the presence is going to be there because it was there at the conference. <laughs> no, there'll be a freshness. We we it was fresh because you were freshly aware of the God and the truth we were singing. That's what was fresh if it was genuine. Otherwise, it was just an emotional feeling. You can go to any concert and get that. But there's a freshness of the soul that comes when there is a freshness to the message, and that's what we're experiencing here. So we're not anti-creativity. We're anti-seeking to, uh, in any way, be those who are creators of worship. Leading worship is a stewardship. You know what a steward does? A steward cares for something that doesn't belong to him, that belongs to somebody else. That's a steward. Leading worship is a choice stewardship because worship is God's thing. It's not our thing. And we're called to participate. We're called to serve. But it's his activity that we're thinking about and not ours. 
We aren't originating anything through our worship services. We're responding to what he's done, to what he's doing, and to what he will do. Here's the beauty of our Sunday gatherings. We're not walking in to originate or create something. We're walking in to respond to what he's done from eternity past. We're walking in to respond to what what he's doing right now and who he is. We're walking in to respond with a future hope of what he will do when we see him face to face for all eternity. Think about that. As we walk in to gather, to sing to the Lord, to pray, to hear his word, we're walking in to his activity, past, present, and future. We're not walking in to do our deal for God. Consider this. When we gather to seek him, we do so because he's already sought us. That's the only reason we're seeking is because he sought us. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We're here singing because he chose us from eternity past. Not because we chose to just walk in here and start singing to him today. There's a history. We're walking into a history when we encounter him. Before we even pray a single prayer in our gathering, Jesus is already interceding for us. Think about that. When we come, we're not opening the service, as it were, with our prayer. He's already interceding. We're late to the party. Romans 8 says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus' nail-scarred hands were interceding for us all night when we slept. When we got up to prepare for the meeting, when we came to the worship service, when we say, He's already been interceding for us. When we gather before we ever sing a note, God is already singing over us. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst. He will exult over you with loud singing. He's not just singing. He's singing loudly. Before we even sing, He's already singing over us. This makes a huge difference. When we walk into the gathering and we're realizing He chose us and for this from eternity past. He's been praying before we even showed up. He is our substitute. He's praying for us on our behalf and His prayers will all be answered. Before we play a note, He's already singing in love over His people whom He gave His life for. Before we extend a welcome to others, He's already welcomed us. Romans 15, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Before anyone reaches out to us, welcomes, before somebody gets to says, I'd like to welcome you all here today, the Father has already welcomed us in Christ with open arms, embracing us, loving us, pursuing us making the greatest sacrifice imaginable for us, granting us new life and securing us for eternity, a heavenly Father adopting us, once orphans and now brought into His family. He's welcomed us with a welcome we can't even imagine. See, we're walking into all that stuff that He's already done and a thousand other things. A thousand other things. True worshipers are receivers and responders. If you're a worship leader, you're lead receiver. You're first responder. We could say, how about that? You're lead receiver and first responder. Your task is to receive and to help the congregation 
receive by facilitating that through God's Word, by facilitating that through leadership, by facilitating that through the singing of songs that are reflective of biblical truth. You're facilitating our receiving. That's what you're doing. You're not creating worship. You're not making it happen. You're not getting the mood. You're not bringing the presence of God. You are facilitating our eyes going to Him, receiving from Him, being made freshly aware of what He's done for us so that we can respond from our heart to the truths that we're hearing. That's what you get to do. When we're faithful to receive, here's what will happen. We'll magnify grace. When we're faithful to receive, we'll worship in spirit and truth, and ultimately we'll encounter God. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're created for, to be his worshipers. Isn't that what brings him glory? Isn't that why we are here? The Father is seeking and finding worshipers who will receive and respond in spirit and truth. He's delighted to reveal himself to us. He has been and he will be. He's delighted to reveal more of himself to us so that we can respond more in spirit and in truth. I pray this reality will impact our hearts. I pray this reality will sort of help us to navigate this conference. All joking aside, when I joked Bob at the beginning, I love the fact that he selected this theme and said we should open here. I I love the wisdom of that. Because this is a truth to help us navigate the conference. There will be plenty to respond to at this conference. Plenty to respond to. Let's ensure we're posturing ourselves to receive and meditate and contemplate who he is and what he's done and to enjoy him the next couple of days. He is at work. May he open our eyes to what he's done for us, to what he's doing for us. May he open our eyes to the beauty of Christ and the gospel. And may this conference be one where we encounter him in a fresh way, where we're faithful to receive. What kind of calling is that? I love that. Be faithful to receive. That is great. Be faithful to have grace poured out upon you and just to receive the gift of God in the truth of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful calling. What a wonderful command. May we be faithful to receive, and may he be among us in a new way, revealing himself to us from the Scriptures. Let's pray.